So could you just start by saying your name and your position at the moment and where you are? My name's uh, Betty Rahman. Uh, I'm a, a senior academic cardiologist uh, in the Ratcliffe Department of Medicine and uh, a British Heart Foundation uh, Centre for Re- Centre of Research Excellence Intermediate Transition Clinical Research Fellow. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. Yes. Uh, and you're based in the Oxford Centre for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I'm working in OCMR, uh, Ratcliffe Department of Medicine. And uh, first of all, just you don't have to tell me your entire life story, but if you just give me the headlines, how did you get to where you are now? How did you first get interested in medicine and how did you come to specialise in, in cardiology and, and what interests you now? Yeah, sure, of course. So I'm Indian in ethnic origin. Um, my parents and great, my grandparents and great-grandparents come from the southernmost tip of India, a place called Kanyakumari. Um, I was, uh, when I was young, uh, my father, who's a doctor, um, had done a lot of inspirational work in the field of cardiology, um, and that was part of my, um, part of the inspiration to pursue medicine. Uh, but I've also th- generally enjoyed um, biology and chemistry, uh, which are both integral for medicine. Um, so that's uh, the reason I picked up medicine. Um, I grew up in a place called Oman in the Middle East and moved to Australia to pursue medicine. So at the age of 17, um, I, was, uh, uh, I was sent to Australia, a place called Adelaide in Australia, uh, where I undertook um, my bachelor's in medicine and then um, specialised in cardiology there. Uh, and in Australia, I, was, I became quite interested in cardiovascular research. Uh, in particular, um, how people develop heart failure uh, and the the role of imaging in heart failure. But I also was exposed to internal medicine where we had to learn about all parts of the body um, and just including mental health. Um, So I've had a very balanced exposure to medicine. Um, And during my um, clinical training in Australia, I realized that I I was really passionate about research. So after completing my cardiology specialization in Australia, um, I applied to do a DPhil here in the University of Oxford and uh, got a fellowship to carry on the academic work. And is that what you're still doing at the moment, or have you finished your DPhil? So I finished my DPhil. All right. And uh, And what was the subject? So the subject was um, an inherited heart condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's most common genetic heart disease and also a leading cause of sudden death in young adults and athletes. So uh, so during my DFO I um, learned how to refine our ability to predict those who can develop progressive heart disease and who may die all of a sudden Um, and during the DFO I had a very productive period where I discovered an oxygen sensitive MRI approach um, which allowed me to then Uh, tell us more about the risk of someone dying um, with this condition. So tell me a bit more about MRI for the benefit of people who might listen to this in in the future. Uh, How did you come to focus on that as a tool that could help answer the kinds of questions you were interested in? Yes, so MRI is a fascinating technology and um, it utilizes the magnetic property of uh, the tissues to provide images which uh, essentially are virtual autopsies uh, or 
sections of the body. Uh, it provides quite extensive detail about the tissue characteristic. Um, uh, in particular, it is able to uh, look into the tissue and tell you whether there's scar in the uh, organ, whether there's any signs of inflammation, or whether there are any problems with the small blood vessels that supply blood or oxygen to the tissue. So it, it, it's like it's an amazing tool that is able to perform um, almost a virtual um, a non-invasive autopsy in a living person. So the, the technology was, um, you know, was, was clearly extremely, of, uh, extremely interesting to, to myself and a lot of uh, specialists across the UK, you'll find that this technology is now ubiquitous and is being utilized in many disciplines. Um, and it's very safe for patients. And it is safe uh, and uh, there's no radiation involved. So, um, yeah, so it, it's a great technology um, which provides quite a lot of detail that we wouldn't be able to access, say, 30 years ago. Well, moving on to the, the COVID pandemic, can you remember where you were or how you first heard that there was something going on in China? Um, and, and, and how soon did you realise that that might be something that was going to affect your work? Absolutely. So um, I had just returned from Oman, which is where my parents reside, um, having just had a, a wonderful wedding uh, with my partner. So which month was this? So this was in December. Yeah. And uh, I was uh, looking forward to, to starting my BHF transition um, intermediate clinical research fellowship, uh, which was really aimed to study um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, however, not long after I'd arrived uh, back from Oman, um, arrived here in, in the UK, um, this was around, say, February, we'd started hearing reports of um, COVID-19 in China. Uh, and I had a meeting with my mentor, who's the head of the de department here, Professor Stefan Neubau. Um, and we were just talking about um, how unbelievable the situation was. Um, and how we had hoped that the, that it wouldn't escalate because at the time there were reports only in China um, and a couple of other countries, but it hadn't really affected the UK or any of the European countries um, or even the United States. So um, we were really just speculating on um, on you know how um, how incredible this uh, this this diseases and how there's so many unanswered questions and um in a couple of meetings later we um we started talking about uh, some reports that had come out of people who were admitted to hospital um, but who had signs of um, quite extensive multi-organ injury um, and professor stefan neubauer and, um, and i were saying well wouldn't it be interesting if we um if we studied study these people who are acutely unwell uh, with M with an MRI scan to see how it's affecting the various organs. Um, and uh, and of course, we, we, we thought about it at the time, but it was clear that we couldn't undertake an acute study because of the infection risk to people, the many unknowns. Um, and uh, so we started thinking of how our knowledge and skills could be put to use in these difficult times. And uh, we, we then considered perhaps a, a more long-term study where we'd look at 
or assess people after they'd, um, they'd recovered from the acute infection um, and uh, just to see whether there were any lingering effects of the infection um, on other organs, but also on the general health of the individual. So how they felt, uh, not just from a physical level, but also a mental health level, but, uh, and also um, from a memory cognition perspective. So you were thinking about all that before the concept of long COVID had even been recognised? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that was quite unique because I think it, I mean, it was just an idea that, that I had when we were sitting, you know, I said, well, you know, it really affects, I was telling um, Stefan, it really affects people so severely that they need to go into ICU and, uh, you know, they need to be ventilated for such a prolonged period of time. Surely it's going to affect their other organs, you know. And this was before the first report came out. And then before you know it, there were multiple reports. There was post-mortem studies, um, also hot you know, prospective studies of hospitalized patients, where it was clear that the virus was not just an ordinary um, influenza virus or just another virus that um, one could get over, but that and that a significant proportion who were admitted to hospital um, were succumbing to the illness and not making it out of hospital. Um, so, so, so that so that was one of the reasons why we thought, well, you know, this is a severe illness, and it is going to affect you know, a lot of the faculties. Like, it's not just going to be uh, the lungs. You know, we, we had a hunch back then that it would affect other organs as well. So you were going to need patients to study, and soon enough, it was quite obvious there were going to be patients in, in the UK. So if we just skip on to March, how did um, the arrival of the pandemic and, and the um, mitigation measures that were put in place immediately affect the, the work that you were doing? So fortunately, Oxford has been a hub for uh, research, not just in COVID, but in other infectious diseases. So we were um, we were relatively optimistic that we would have some um, we would have some support to carry on the um, the research that we were planning, uh, and indeed that is what unfolded over the months to come. Um, and you know that was actually quite. Um, yeah, that was an enormous uh, support for us because we had um, the trust as well as the university encouraging us to carry on our research. Uh, um, and so that didn't affect us as much. But of course, all the other research that I had been funded to carry out um, had to be suspended. Um, and um, we shifted our focus to the pandemic and uh, to try and try and understand how um, this infection will affect people. And did you have to get new funding for that, or were you? Was, did the BHF let you move your funding across? Yes. So we did apply for funding to the um, BRC and IHR Oxford BRC, um, who supported us uh, with some pilot uh, funding to collect, gather some pilot data on fifty subjects, and then uh, we applied for national funding, which also. Um, which was also successful uh, to study a large number of patients, so 500 uh, subjects with advanced MRI uh, data. Um, and um, we're collaborating quite closely with uh, an, another national follow-up study called FOSCOVID, which, uh, which are designed to study 10,000 patients, uh, but not uh, to look at their multi-organ MRI scans, but to collect all the other sort of um, quality of life and symptom data from people as, as they recover from COVID-19. And this FOSS stands for post-hospitalization? COVID-19, yes. COVID yes. yes. Um, 
And, and so, so the patients you focused on have all been ones who've been ill enough to be in hospital, is that right? Yes, so yeah. the original hypothesis was that if you were ill enough to get into hospital, that the disease was severe enough to potentially affect other organs, whether it was directly from the virus infecting the organs or the immune response to the virus that was causing it. So um, although we've learned now um, following the initial data that there are studies now out there that are detecting abnormalities even in people who are recovering in the community who didn't end up in hospital. Um, and that's that's an interesting observation, um, uh, and we're trying to understand why that is. Uh, I mean, are you thinking of collecting that kind of data yourselves? Yes. So we've started now also studying people um, who didn't get admitted to hospital, um, but recovered recovered at home, as we know that. Um, a proportion of these people continue to have ongoing symptoms, uh, which we now know um, is called long COVID. Um, and actually, the number of people who didn't uh, get admitted to hospital is far greater than those who were admitted to hospital. So, um, so we're trying to understand whether the reason why they continue to have symptoms is because of multiple organ involvement, uh, or whether there's something else that um, we can try and decipher. So let's, well, we've talked about the studies, we should talk about the findings. So, so first of all, starting with the hospital patients, um, you had a big publication out, was it December or January this year? Yeah, that's January. right, yes. 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 So what, what were your findings in the, in the hospitalised patients? Yeah, so it's really quite interesting. So we looked at a small number of patients, but we were, we were quite careful in making sure that, the, um, that we compared them to people who had similar comorbid conditions or um, similar yeah, comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension because we were concerned that MRI um, can be quite sensitive um, and even conditions like diabetes and hypertension can cause changes on the MRI, um, which may not be related to COVID-19. So um, we decided to study 58 patients who um, were discharged from hospital and who were about two to three months from their infection. And uh, alongside, we also enrolled people who were not uh, affected by COVID-19, so had a negative PCR test and um, had no symptoms of um, COVID-19. But had um, also been in hospital for something? No, some unfortunately, oh, hospital, we, couldn't, right. we couldn't study hospitalised patients um, because of the risk that we would be exposing them to uh, by asking them to come into hospital. Um, so they were generally, like, ge at the time, hospitalised patients um, from other conditions who had not had COVID-19 were, uh, were asked to go home and stay in oh, self-isolation. Yes, yes. So it was... Um, <laughs> It was very difficult to get get uh, get people who were hospitalised um, but didn't have COVID nineteen. Mm. Um, so yeah, so we compared uh, people who were recovering from COVID nineteen after being admitted to hospital and controls, and we found that a proportion had um, changes on the MRI scan to suggest uh, that there might be inflammation of the organs, um, and uh, and in addition to this. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a significant proportion, two in three people, um, had reported symptoms of persistent uh, breathlessness, fatigue, brain fog, the range of symptoms that we now know as long COVID. 
Um, we two, two out of three, you're saying. Two out of three, that's yeah. High, so it, it is indeed high. And mm. in fact, um, this is an underestimation because we, we excluded people with many comorbidities because we couldn't find controls with many comorbidities. So we what, had what to be, so things like um, if they've had chronic lung disease, um, like COPD, uh, we, we didn't include them. Um, or, um, you know, previous uh, myocardial infarction or heart attacks. Uh, we, it wasn't easy for us to quickly find controls or uh, non-COVID subjects with multiple comorbidity. So we're quite careful in trying to make sure that the uh, that the two groups that we, we were studying were similar in characteristics um, to come to some uh, conclusion about whether these changes were related to COVID or not. Um, although I appreciate that that's, that, that still has its limitations, um, but I'll talk about it in, in a bit, in the sense that it would be the most ideal design would be having an MRI before the infection and then after the infection. Um, so, so yeah, so so we found that a proportion had abnormalities in M- an MRI, and two out of three um, had ongoing symptoms. Uh, you know, most people could not walk um, for a long time um, on a six-minute walk test, and there were there were significant discrepancies and differences in exercise tolerance between people who are recovering from COVID nineteen and and our control subjects. Um, and we also undertook cardiopulmonary exercise tests to see what could be contributing to the limited exercise tolerance. And we found a mixture of pattern, like some people had lung problems that were limiting them, some people had heart problems that were limiting them, and then there were others with, with just muscle you know, deconditioning and muscle impairment. So we, we got a lot of information from that small group, but you know, carefully selected group of patients um, and have been following them up uh, as well as expanding our numbers um, across the by recruiting people across the UK, mm-hmm. and has that come to publication yet? I, I didn't find enough. So no. So we are. Um, so the the national study um, is quite complex because it requires um, a lot of. Um, so so there are a lot of stakeholders and there has to be uh, a lot of approvals to then release the data. Um, we do have some preliminary data now. Uh, which confirms or which is in line with our early study. So it's reassuring to see that even with small numbers, we saw the signal and the, and, and the findings are reproducible in, in a larger data set. Uh, but this is, these are exciting times because we have, we have now accumulated a lot of data. And in an era of artificial intelligence and machine learning, I suspect we, we are going to ha- have some really important and interesting insights from, from this data, uh, which we probably wouldn't have, say, 20 years ago, um, say yes. Mm. So you said you've continued to follow up your original 50 patients. Absolutely. Uh, are you able to say whether they got better? Yeah. So a proportion of people do get better and recover, um, but uh, about um, there's, there's still about 50%, so one and two, that still continue to feel uh, the effects of, um, of covid and have persistent symptoms, and after again, how many months? after after six months. But I can tell you um, that we also have data now, and um, from the, so the six month data has been published. Uh, but we also have data now from the twelve months, and again, this number doesn't change much at all. Um, so being admitted to hospital seems to be um, quite an important risk factor for uh, long COVID or uh, ongoing symptoms, and this is certainly being found by other investigators who are studying. Um, the after effects of COVID-19. 
one question I, I had as came up because I was speaking to somebody else who was doing a big data study um, is whether you've been able to look at people who've been hospitalised with flu, for example, with another serious respiratory disease that kills people. Yeah, so um, I'm sure you might have been, uh, you might be aware from the media coverage of this, the number of people getting admitted with the flu has declined dramatically because of social isolation and uh, masking. So we're not uh, seeing as many cases and recruitment um, of such patients is actually quite challenging. Mm -hmm. But we have data from uh, retrospective health registries uh, that suggest that despite uh, looking or compare, making comparisons with people recovering from the flu, there appears to be an increased risk of a number of um, a number of um, conditions, including cardiovascular um, abnormalities as well as uh, clots and strokes in people recovering from COVID nineteen. But do you see some effects of long term effects of flu? So there are, of course, so there are people recovering from the flu who, but again, not, not the majority or not a significant proportion. People who get admitted to hospital with the flu, um, the literature in relation to this uh, does not suggest a significant number continuing to experience symptoms. Um, I must say, however, that long COVID resembles other, uh, some other post-viral syndromes like um, glandular fever, so Epstein-Barr virus infections, um, herpes uh, virus infections. So there are some other viruses that have been known to um, result in ongoing symptoms beyond the acute infection. Oh, I keep thinking of experiments to do. Has, has anybody looked at uh, whether previous infection with um, glandular fever has any effect on susceptibility to COVID or how serious your COVID is? I'm sure they have, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately I haven't read yeah. that paper. So, <laughs> uh, Because I have to say that th these questions have been asked by people um, mm. uh, and uh, certainly not just, so not just glandular fever, even um, uh, cytomegalovirus, uh, people seem to think that the response, body's response to this virus may determine whether you have ongoing symptoms. Um, so. Uh, these are all important questions that are that are being asked, and um, and and I'm happy to look look it up, but I don't have the answers to it at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so just returning for a moment to the the case of uh, people who were not hospitalised uh, and may even had quite a mild infection, um, acute infection, but have gone on to have very long term symptoms. What what do you what is the general picture at the moment? I know this in, hasn't been a particular focus of your work, but um, mm -hmm. presumably it's something that interests you. Yes, almost certainly. So I think there is something in common between the community patients who carry on or who have lingering symptoms and those who were hospitalised and who still have symptoms by 12 months. It's highly unusual for someone to have had a viral infection and continue to have symptoms by 12 months from the infection. That's not something you'd hear, like a year after you've had the infection, you're still feeling the same way. So there's a lot that can be learned from the community patients. And, um, and I would say that at the moment, it isn't quite clear as yet what is driving this in the community patients. We have some, uh, we have done some research in the hospitalized patients that suggests an inflammatory signal that might be contributing to ongoing well, symptoms. What does that mean? Can you explain that a bit more? Sure. So um, 
in about a thousand in in a thousand patients that were admitted to hospital uh, by a median of five months from the time they were admitted with the infection um, there were tests done on the blood samples that were collected uh, from these patients and we detected certain chemicals or cytokines uh, which were shown to predict whether they continue to have symptoms by 12 months and uh, there were some cytokines or chemicals that were that independently predicted and these were also um, quite important for inflammation. Yes, so these are things that are produced uh, during as an inflammatory response. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, but, so this is uh, now, the caveat is that this is in a hospitalized cohort um, and this was at five months, so not 12 months. So we, we do need to do more research, um, study what happens by 12 months. Um, from my work, I know that there is a natural history or there are longitudinal changes in uh, the the way the body responds to, to the disease. So over time, you know, the, the body's immune system uh, becomes clever and smart and, and its response to the infection or the damage does evolve and some people improve and some people might stay the same. Um, so I think it's really important to get that time factor right and to understand how the immune system changes and res responds to things over time. And that's something that we're, uh, we're currently doing. Mm -hmm. So just turning to, to you a bit more. So you're clearly a very experienced cardiologist, but in terms of research, you've only just done your PhD. And this is quite a big, important study. Did, you, did that feel like a big step up for you? Um, Yes, well, I mean, I have done research in, in Australia as well, um, and I had a really uh, strong mentor who gave me a lot of confidence. And then, of course, um, I'm, I'm, I've got some really um, passionate uh, mentors here as well, so Professor Hugh Watkins and Professor Stefan Noibo, who always made me feel like um, there is no limit, like that, you know, uh, if, if you want to answer a question, you know, just go for it. Um, do the research as long as it's well designed um, and you know and, and the sky is basically the limit so they've really empowered me and I felt very blessed um, to be in this position I have to say because I don't know many Indian girls uh, or women who have just finished their PhD and have been allowed to lead a multi-center study so, so you see I, I, I do feel very privileged yeah and in terms of your um, the the, the um, demands of the job, I mean, has it meant the hours have been intense? Absolutely, yes. Mm. So there've been many sleepless nights, and um, ev I've worked every weekend. Um, but I think I, I feel like um, this is an incredible opportunity, and I I'm sure if I live for another twenty thirty years, uh, the average life expectancy in my family is sixty. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I'm sure that if um, if I live long enough, I look back thinking I'm glad I did that. You know, I'm I'm really glad I grabbed that opportunity and I went to help. Um, you know, I, I contributed to that uh, to, to, to that to, to understanding the disease. I also feel like long COVID, um, unfortunately, is now being classified or is um, is being treated very much like chronic fatigue syndrome. And I feel like because doctors don't have any quick answers, they're quick to lose interest and to walk away. Um, and I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some answers. So, I mean, I think 
we've done that in the past with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I just think that it would be like, you know, I, I think it's, it would be criminal to not recognize that we don't, we need to find answers for this. And um, the chronic fatigue syndrome, from some of the things I've read, there's a sense that that's being reassessed now. That, Absolutely. Um, NICE has changed its guidelines. Absolutely. And uh, the idea that it's all in the head of the patients yeah. seems to be being reassessed. The irony of it is the only, at least this is my point of view, um, you know, it could, it could differ, uh, you know, when you talk to other people. But I think part of this uh, has to do with doctors falling sick. So when you have a colleague who has um, endured the same amount of training, who has endured the same amount of work as you have over the years, and, and they, they attest to the fact that they are still experiencing ongoing symptoms, then it becomes more real, it's more close to you, um, and, and, and people are willing to acknowledge it. That, and that includes even children or, you know, uh, children of doctors who, who are experiencing it. So I think because of the scale of long COVID and because of the fact that it's now crept into the medical system um, in, in, and has affected many health professionals, the medical system is now paying some attention, but I can hear people turning their back and saying, we don't have answers and we can't solve this. Um, but I believe that we can, and I think we will, so. Mm. And have you personally or your family been affected by the disease? So I have been, I've had COVID myself oh, twice, uh, twice, despite being oh, vaccinated. <laughs> and I endured the symptoms for two weeks and I cried. Two weeks, two weeks and I cried. Imagine the people who are living with these symptoms for, for 12 months or more. I mean, uh, like I said, I just think it's, you know, I think we have to do more. We just mm. have to try and understand why they feel this way mm -hmm. um, and listen to them rather than say, look, it's in the head. It might be in the head, but why is it in the head? What's causing all this? So, I mean, it's going to be a very difficult uh, difficult uh, problem to resolve, but it's not within our limits. Uh, so, it's, sorry, it's not, uh, not beyond our limits. Yeah. And uh, I think we can, yeah, we can find the answers to it. Mm -hmm. So were you involved at all I mean, in this, this building? Um, I mean, the university brought in um, safety measures across its whole estate. Um, were you involved in discussions about what those should be or, and, and how satisfied were you with the way they were implemented? So in terms of uh, this... this um, the protection of the health of the staff. Sure. I mean, I think it, it's difficult to... Um, criticize the health system because I think everything happened at such a tremendous fast scale but it would have been nice to have more PPE um, which was which for which like that there was a shortage of PPE at the start of the pandemic um, it would have been nice if we had the vaccines in time <laughs> there are so many things that it could have could have been done better um, but overall I think we did the best we could with the resources we had and the pressures that were imposed by, um, you know, by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I've been doing all this without looking at my questions. Um, uh, 
Oh yes, this is just a, um, a, a, a particular focus that I didn't ask you about, but I think for completeness we should include it. Um, also, I've, yes, I've written down Seymour. So is that the study that you were talking about? That's the study about? I'm leading, yeah. So, so, sorry, the study you're leading is called? Seymour. And what does that stand for? So that stands for Capturing the Multi-Organ Effects of COVID-19. And that's a national study? It is a national study. Yes. And it, um, and it's, it, it works alongside FOSS-COVID. So we are... Um, providing the MRI uh, phenotyping um, for patients who are enrolled in FOSS-COVID, but we also have, we are also enrolling patients independent of FOSS-COVID. And you've done a small study of um, something called Xenon MRI. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I'm not the chief investigator of that sub-study, but um, I can tell you about that study as um, as I've helped with those efforts. So. Uh, so the signal from the lungs on MRI is muted when you compare it to the signal from the other organs because the lung um, is made up of air sacs that contain oxygen. And oxygen in general has a poor magnetic signal. So, um, so the scientists or, or MRI physicists have cleverly devised a way to magnetize a gas, xenon, and provide it to patients to inhale for a few seconds and to map out the magnetized gas as it enters the lung and diffuses into the blood vessels. So we know from uh, a decade of research done by uh, Professor Fergus Gleason's lab uh, what normal pattern looks like of xenon gas ventilating the lungs and diffusing across into the blood. Um, and uh, we know what the pattern looks like in other diseases like asthma and COPD. Um, and uh, so Professor Gleason wanted to see whether this technology would, would detect uh, subclinical changes, which by the, by the term subclinical, I refer to people who have normal CAT scans, normal CT scans, normal X-rays. Can this technology tell us more than these normal, than these investigations that are currently used as part of the NHS? So he wanted to study uh, people with ongoing symptoms, but with normal CT scans and chest x-rays with, with this technology to see whether it was more informative. And indeed, it, it is. Um, so what we can see is that our abnormalities in gas transfer um, in, in the lung, which would suggest that there may be problems with the um, alveolar capillary um, uh, interface. So it's the 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 part where the gas crosses the lung so where uh, normally cells. the oxygen should be going from your lungs into your blood into your blood exactly and, and, the, and the carbon dioxide back the other way yes and so that research is was, was really quite like no, like innovative and fascinating because you know we have a lot of people who get told oh you know your scans are normal we, we can't find anything but here you have something that is actually um, testing and that's looking into um, gas transfer in the lungs and that, that is detecting abnormalities. So um, so Professor Gleason, Gleason was funded um, or was awarded uh, national funding to carry on that work uh, which we've been supporting. Mm, mm, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. That, um, so have your results so far changed practice in the, in the medical, you know, in the area of areas in which you work? Yes, so it has certainly brought to light the uh, the persistence of symptoms in hospitalised patients and, and the significant burden. It has also raised questions about uh, whether uh, 
people who are discharged from hospital um, should be having MRI scans to see if they have lingering changes uh, in, in the body. So it has certainly led to a change in practice in some institutions uh, who are performing MRI. But I think this is an area of active research and it will evolve as we gather more data. Hmm. Very good. Yes, I've got a question. I think you more or less answered it, but I'll just pose it as a single question. Do, do you think the fact that you were able to work on something that was so relevant to uh, understanding this condition supported your own well-being? As you know, everybody in the country was dealing with lockdown and uncertainty. I mean, for me, I think it's just the constant uncertainty about where we're going with this that was the most difficult to deal with. But you had a, you had a job to do. Did, was that helpful for you, do you think? Absolutely, mm. yes. So I think the fact that um, the research was focused on uh, an aspect that everyone were enduring um, and, and the whole world was affected by this, everything became interesting, even looking at the news, which I wasn't very good at reading. You know, I'd keep myself updated with the news. It, um, I mean, I think it injected a, a, a renewed enthusiasm um, for research. Um, and yeah, I consider myself extremely fortunate in that way. And has the work raised new questions that you're interested in exploring in the future? When, yeah. If a time comes when you're ever able to move on from COVID-19, Certainly. or even, even with COVID-19, because, I mean, presumably these after-effects could be detectable for years to come. Absolutely. So there are many uh, questions that have surfaced from this work, but I think one of the things that uh, really stood out for me um, as a um, as I've carried out, carried out this study, is uh, the importance of listening to patients. So we've always um, undertaken research to explore um, mechanisms, uh, scientific mechanisms that could contribute to disease, and that is important. But I feel like we have uh, been deaf in a way to the patient voice, um, and I think COVID really brought that out um, so we've through treated, these so treated bodies as machines. In the absolutely, past. Yeah. yes, um, and I think uh, I think it, it's become increasingly clear that you know if, if you know, and this is not just for COVID for any disease for that matter. I mean, I can tell you, being a cardiologist, that we've had patients with the cardiomyopathy that I'm studying who uh, get told, look, your scans look fine, everything, nothing has changed, but they're still feeling quite poorly. Um, but what are we doing to understand that? Like, what is the cause for these uh, ongoing symptoms? And I think long COVID might help answer some of those questions and, um, and uh, has certainly um, emphasized the need to think about the patient as a whole rather than a disease or an organ. And that's pretty much answered the, my final question, which is whether the experience has changed your attitude or your approach to your work and, and how you'd like to see things change in the future. But you did pretty much cover that. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add? No, I mean, I think I think um, I really do hope that it becomes important to have or essential to have a patient public engagement in a group. You know, when we submit research proposals, because I think uh, their voice just needs to be heard, and you know, um, and we'll all be one of them <laughs> at some point in our lives. So it's important to remember that. That's great. Okay, so I'm still talking to Betty Rahman, um, and a question that I forgot to ask was, uh, having collected m masses of data about what 
the ongoing symptoms of these hospitalised patients look like, um, have you been able to start to look at treatments and the effects of treatment? Yes. So, um, so I think long COVID is not just one disease, but it's um, a cluster of different diseases in a way. Um, so there are some people who have ongoing inflammation. Um, Can I in just the... stop you for a second because your hair is... Can you move the microphone down a bit yeah. so that it's... Okay. I think it wants to go on the other side, actually. Oh, does it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Down, just so that your hair doesn't sure. brush against. Yeah, there we go. Okay. That's lovely. Um, yep, okay. So, uh, so yes, we are testing treatments. Um, we So long COVID is, uh, in my mind, uh, not just one disease, but a cluster of many phenotypes, uh, of which uh, there are some dominant uh, markers of disease. So one in particular is um, presence of ongoing inflammation in people. So we're um, currently designing a, a trial where we're testing um, a medication that reduces the immune response in people or suppresses the immune response in people uh, who have an exaggerated response and who have ongoing COVID symptoms. Um, the other cluster that uh, is uh, apparent is is essentially people who continue to have limited uh, mobility or exercise tolerance because of profound fatigue and who are unable to do uh, their daily activity. Um, and what we've found is that these people have uh, problems with um, the metabolism in their muscles. So we're testing a treatment, uh, which is a composition of branched-chain amino acids, to see whether that will help the mitochondria or the energy levels in the skeletal muscle and whether this will translate into an improvement in fatigue. And the third treatment that is currently um, under review uh, or that, that, that we are thinking about is medicine that reduces obesity and that helps reduce weight because there have been a lot of studies shown uh, that is that, sh that are showing us that the more obese someone is the more likely they are to develop ongoing and persistent symptoms of COVID-19. And those studies are all still ongoing? Um, yes yeah. so two of the studies are yet to receive approval uh, but that's something in the pipeline and one uh, has received approval and we are have already started uh, screening patients for it. But it's too soon to say what the results might yes, be. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, it's too soon. Okay, that's fine. Thank you very much.